the great transition, right? Let's try to stay in the atmosphere of the Lord. But if you have children and you want to send them to the back, you're more than welcome to. And if you'd like to keep them with you, you can do that as well. Um, before we go on any farther, I want to um, ask you guys to help us. I, I think David mentioned it, but we have moved the worship night to, to here tonight. So if you would help us just real quick, if you get your phone out and go to the Proclaiming Jesus Facebook page, if you would share that, that would be amazing. That would help us really get that message out um, today. Um, so if you, if you don't mind doing that, that would be, that would be awesome. Also, um, it, where, is there any other birthdays in here this month other than John Graham? He's the only one. She's November. October. Yeah, so Isaiah, Lenora, John, Naomi, Kaylani. Happy birthday, everybody. <laughs> All right. Any anniversaries this month? Yeah, how many years? Awesome. Yay. You're almost to completion. One more year. <laughs> you get number seven in the bag, it's all downhill from there. You guys too? How many years? Wow. Awesome. Good deal. Praise God. Did I miss anybody? Oh, back there. How many years? Nine. Man. That's a lot for me, bro. Like, I remember when this guy was this big. Like, literally. <laughs> That's, it's, I feel old. Thank you for that. But I am so proud of you. you. You've done a great job with your life and your family. It's awesome to watch young men grow up and be men of God. It's a blessing of getting old, right? Been in it long enough. You've seen the people you've discipled and raised up have kids and then raise up and others disciple them. And it's a beautiful thing. So thank you, Lord, for that. Amen? Uh, so we're going to, I planned on trying to get through this message today. It's just not going to happen. There's too much on my, on my notes. And I don't want to shortchange the power of the topic this morning. So we'll probably do two sessions. That'll be easier on your backside and your schedule. And so I want to honor that. So we are... Um, at the very last verse that we're going to go through, and the rest of them are Paul's greetings to the churches and to individuals in the book of Ephesians. But if you've been with us, we've been going verse by verse through the book. It's taken us a couple years, and uh, I pray you've been blessed by the content. And it's online if you ever want to go back and revisit that on any podcast platform that you prefer, or the website. And um, thank you guys for do that. Thank you, Eric and Tyler, for making those available. Sure saves me a lot of work from having to re-preach it. I love when I get done with a series because when, when someone sits in my office and I feel like they need to, I, I don't have to go preach it to them. I'm just like, here, go listen to this and come back and talk to me. And um, thank, Lord, thank the Lord for technology. Um, 
So we're, we're in uh, Ephesians 6, verse, I believe, 17, part B. So if uh, you want to turn there, you can turn there. I don't want to undermine Paul's approach to the chapter and to the verse that we've landed on. This is his final words to the people in the body in the ecclesia of, of Ephesus. Oh, I'm sorry, it's 18. There we go. Paul ends his entire discourse to the Ephesian church in the topic of prayer. It's one thing to understand how things work in this earth. That's understanding and knowledge. But it's quite another thing to understand the realm of the kingdom of God and how it operates. That is called wisdom. Knowledge and understanding unpack wisdom. The three are separate. Wisdom is from above. Knowledge and understandings open what is given to us from the heavenly realm. It takes wisdom to be able to hear the Lord. It's one of the spirits that rested upon Christ. It's the spirit that we should live and operate in. We did a series on that, didn't we? So Paul, at the end here, brings forth the issue of prayer. And in the kingdom reality, the last shall be what? And the first shall be, I don't think the context is out of line for this idea. What Paul leaves them with is the source of all life. Without prayer, absolutely nothing of kingdom reality will ever work. But it is the most neglected thing in Christianity. And even in those who do pray, 80 to 90% of their prayers are praying for things they've already been given. I don't believe the church has touched what prayer actually is because if she did, the nation would feel the aftershock of her encounter with the Most High God. In fact, if you go into any church and preach on prayerlessness, you can pretty much guarantee to fill the altar. You are sitting in the seat you're sitting in today. You are in the capacity in, in which you operate in with God simply because of prayer. No one in this building came to Christ without prayer. Even if it was just the great intercessor himself before God Almighty praying for you. Nothing happens without prayer, which is why nothing happens in most Christian lives. Are you with me? I have people come into my office all the time who have marriage problems, who have family problems. And I ask the men a lot of times, how many hours have you spent on your face weeping for your wife? I ask the women, how many hours have you spent on your face 
for your husband. You know, it's mamas will get on their face for their kids, but a lot of times they won't get on their face for their husband. Men will get on their face for their jobs, for their income, for their careers, for their business. They won't always get on their face for their wife. What if we prayed as hard as we argued? What if we prayed as hard as we disagreed with? What if we prayed like the one who we say we want to be like? I think counseling sessions would be greatly minimized. So I want to talk about prayer in the next couple of sessions that we're going to have together. It'll be a couple of weeks because I believe Tyler's speaking next Sunday. and I'm excited for that. But I want you to understand that prayer is the backbone and the essence of everything that the kingdom moves through into this earth. Do you understand the kingdom of God? You should. Because it's where your citizenship is. Most of you think you're an American. And you would be wrong. You live in a different kingdom. And if you don't operate by the rules of that kingdom, then the only thing that can happen is confusion can ensue. Which is why most Christians are confused. Because they're not used to living in the kingdom by which they're purchased. The kingdom dominates everything. It just hasn't ultimately enforced itself yet. You remember Daniel? And the interpretation he had to Nebuchadnezzar's dream and all the kingdoms of the world stacked upon one another in one idolatrous image and the Messiah comes and strikes it at its very foundation and consumes it all and then invades the entire earth with its presence. That reality is more real than it ever has been, even if we don't see it. Jesus owns everything. There wasn't one thing his blood did not purchase, pay for, and, and, and receive to himself. Everything that is not under his subjection is in an act of ultimate rebellion. Because he owns everything. He owns your wife, your husband, your kids, your job, your bank account. Everything is his. It is temporarily on loan from God to you to see only one thing. How will you use it to grow the kingdom you're a part of? This is why the Bible talks about rich people weeping, howling, and being miserable and being very afraid. Because if they don't use their wealth to build the kingdom of God, their wealth could cause them to miss the very kingdom they're called to. This makes sense. By prayer, we access kingdom reality. This is why I asked, do you understand the kingdom? 
Because the kingdom is a legal realm. And the kingdom of God at this point has no ability by God's design to invade earth outside of any other capacity than the human capacity. God has resisted himself the urge and the right that he has to invade our society because he wants to see who is going to allow him to do it through them. Let me say it this way. The kingdom can't come unless it comes through people. I know we like to think that God is all powerful and he is. Yet we understand that in his all powerful state, God has limited himself to movement in this realm because he honors the authority we gave. It's not that he can't, it's that he's chosen not to. Because within the authority he gave us, he sees where our hearts really and truly lie. You want to know what's in people, you give them freedom and you give them power and everything in their heart will be exposed. And that's exactly what Jesus gave us. And he demands something back. Why? Because he's not coming to restore America. He's coming to restore his kingdom. I'm not saying he won't restore America, but that's not the ultimate agenda. It would be just a mere step along the way to something greater. When Jesus teaches us to pray, thy kingdom come, why would he do that if it was only resting upon the hands of Abba to perform? Why in the very nature of prayer does God bring up the reality of us speaking out in a public way through our own mouths, a calling forth into the kingdom reality? Why? Because the kingdom can't come unless a human calls it into being. Do you remember the first message Jesus ever preached? after coming out of the wilderness endued with power. He says, repent because the kingdom is coming. It was the first time in all of history where that statement could actually be made. We, we take it as mere scriptural trifle, like something to be like overlooked and like, oh, the kingdom's coming because Jesus said, no, a human being was now brought into reality in a way where God can now move through humanity, whereas he could not before because of sin. God himself was waiting for the revealing of Christ so that his, his kingdom could come. Why? Because the kingdom can't come unless it comes through people. And Jesus had to become human in order to release the divine into the earth because it's a legality that God himself will not break. This is why Jesus in the end will come back and rule for a thousand years in Jerusalem as a man. Because it takes a man to rule what God gave man. And unfortunately, most men and women don't rule their own hearts, minds, or homes. Yet we pray for God to revive the land. It's a prayer he cannot answer. <clears throat> Revival and restoration start in the mind and the heart of the believer where the kingdom abides. And if we aren't restored, it is not ministry to go out and try to restore others. The best you'll do is bring them into a salvific reality that only you possess. And that is not something that honestly we wanna wish on most people. If you could transfer your complete Christianity as it is into someone else as you are, and that's all they would get, would you be happy with that? The answer is no. 
then we have a lot to change inside. You know, it's funny, I'll quote Leonard Ravehill a couple times during the series, but one of the things he said, if you want to know how popular the church is, show up on Sunday morning. If you want to know how popular the pastor is, show up on Wednesday night. But if you want to know how popular God is, show up for prayer. And I can testify after 25 years of pastoring and ministry, prayer is the most least attended night of the week. Because we would have, rather have God just move on us and satisfy our dopa hit and us go back throughout the week and continue to live just as we are with nothing changing, hoping Sunday we come back and he hits us again the same way and we just feel better. Why? Because we're spiritual addicts instead of lovers of Jesus. Does he restore us? Does he meet us? Oh, absolutely, because it's just who he is. It's his nature. But he expects his nature to be infectious to where when we encounter him, we begin to look and act like him, love like him, live like him. And that only happens through intimacy and prayer. Ask yourself, if you had to put a pie chart in your life of the percentages of prayers you pray, would the majority of them be for the problems you've had or would they be to know the God you love? Because most people only pray when they're in the foxhole of life. When the marriage is going bad, when the kids are going off. You know, I know people who only pray when things go bad and they wonder why things are always going bad because it's the only way God can get them to pray. I mean, seriously, I know Christians, if everything went right, they would quit every part of intimacy with Jesus. Because God is a means to their own end. He's not the everything that they claim him to be. Interesting enough that Paul categorizes prayer in the Ephesians 6 context of warfare. And it's also interesting to understand that the Christians mostly lose most of the battles they face. We pray really hard when things go really bad. Problem is, that's called defense. I believe there's a place in prayer that you can so reside in that you have already prayed about things in the spirit that you don't even know are about to come. And when they come, you automatically win just because you've been there before them. Most Christians don't live there. We live under the power of influence of circumstance. In other words, we react instead of respond. Something happens, we explode, we get angry, we get upset, we get flashy, we get fleshy because our own spirits aren't under subjection to the Messiah. When you're in war, do you want somebody who's gonna react or respond? I want brothers and sisters in Christ who know how to respond, who've been trained, who've been hardened in battle, who understand Messiah's goal 
they can see beyond the circumstance, who've trained their minds to see ascension and resurrection as the reality and the cross is only the means to get there. These are the types of people who don't freak out when calamity comes. These are the types of people who know how to pray effectively and fervently because they're not praying the circumstance. They're praying the intention of God who brought the circumstance. Prayer is not a reaction to something happening. It, I'm not saying that's wrong, but it's not ultimate. I'm saying that there's a prophetic voice. Do you think that God doesn't know when something's getting on somebody before it comes? Where's the prophetic reality? That somebody can come in and say, this is coming. This is coming. And the intercessors begin to say, amen. We will pray and we will win. And then when it comes, everybody's already broke through before the battle even got there, which means we can just stand in what God has already spoken as we've petitioned him. Do we pray like this? Or is our prayer life a knee-jerk reaction or maybe just a momentary, Lord, help me through this day? Most people pray only for themselves and their family, and, but they're not kingdom people. Because kingdom people understand the family of God is not human blood. It is the DNA of heaven. And we should have as much jealousy for the person who's sitting next to us that is not our blood as we do for the ones who are. And if we do not, we bear a fault. Because I know people who have blood DNA who will not see their family in heaven. I've got several in my family that I will not see. They've already already went to hell. There's no way out for them. They rejected the gospel and I will not be with them in eternity. Prayerfully, I'll be with you. You are my family. You are bought by the blood of Christ. We share the same father. We are not different. We are one. And I should jealously pray for you just as much as I would those who are my own. Amen? Prayer is warfare and intimacy at the same time. Every act of prayer that starts in intimacy will usually end in some degree of warfare. You ever go spend time with Jesus and man, you meet that man and he just wrecks you. But then all of a sudden, after that moment with him, he turns your attention to something he wants done. Somebody he wants prayer for. Something he wants you to do. Something he wants you to pray. Why? Because he needs a human being on earth to bring heaven to the reality that he's concerned about. God is not often concerned about the things you're concerned about. He's concerned about the things that he's concerned about. But the things that he's concerned about will ultimately bring about the restoration of the things that you need. Does this make sense? So prayer, first and foremost, is right communication. 
It's right connection. Jesus restored our ability to pray from the top down instead of from the bottom up. We had 6,000 years after the fall, give or take, of men petitioning God from the earth up. And the best that those prayers got were those people getting out of tight situations and bad, and bad circumstances. Think about it. God hears the cries of Israel. He delivers them, but they go right back into the same idolatry. Nothing changed. Only their physical circumstances. So when I see a Christian in New Testament reality praying only about physical circumstances and nothing changes in their demeanor and their character in Christ, I know they're living under an Old Testament covenant. Because God only exists to keep them out of the bad things that are happening, to, to fix the bad things that are going wrong, and nothing's changed. But Jesus gave us the right to start praying from the top down, which means we possess things that this earth needs, and it needs the sons of God seated at the right hand of God at the same time they're living in this earth. In that reality, praying the way Jesus says to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. But the nature of a son knows that thy will be done often indicates the death of the one who's praying it. Are we so in love, we're willing to give our life to have this kingdom birth? Or are you so lulled to sleep that your job is the only thing you live for through the week? Do you and have you lost the ache of seeing his kingdom burn in the hearts of people? Are you sidetracked because you have a daughter or a son that's away from God and you have not remembered the rest of them also? If God can draw a circle around your prayer life and it only involves your blood family, you've missed what prayer really is. Prayer is a kingdom connection that was restored by the blood and, and we should honor that. Do you understand how important it is that Jesus gave us the access to be seated next to him? Do you realize how many men had prayed from the, from the bottom up, longing for the same reality for us to be able to pray from the top down? Do you realize what privilege and honor you have to be born in this generation, to be able to access God at the right hand of the Father? And yet, no wonder the enemy somehow and through some, so many ways convinces Christians that prayer is something we do before a meal. I would, if I was a betting person, I would say a high percentage of the people in this room have never prayed the way God intends prayer to be. Within prayer is found intimacy, warfare, release, compassion, intercession, revelation, clarity, faith, hope restored, power, authority, and so much more. This is why you feel better after you go to pray and Jesus meets you. Why? 
because you're actually involving yourself in God's intention for your life. So many Christians try to be so without God. Prayer is, it's actually prayers, the true prayer is, is, is really God's release of the pressure that he bears through the outlet of humanity. I don't know where we got this idea that we're disassociated and God is just up there separate, just watching the decisions we make and just deciding whether he's going to intervene or not. God has pressure. The same way we have pressure. God gets angry the same way we get angry. God loves the same way we love, but greater. He, God gets pressurized and his heart gets heavy and he has to share something with somebody and that's what he does through prayer. He finds people who are on their face to alleviate. He finds eyes to cry through, mouths to pray through. And through humanity, he releases the pressure of heaven into the earth because that is the pressure that's gonna bring change into circumstances in society. When we are prayerless, we keep God's pressure contained. And when God releases his pressure into the earth, things move. Jesus was a result of the pressure of God being released in an ultimate way into our reality, and everything changed. It's the invitation. Prayer is an invitation. Us inviting God, fulfilling the legal obligation of the kingdom pressure, allowing God to move in the earth that he gave us. It's an acquiesce. It's God, you use me to do what you want through me. I give you permission. I relinquish my will, my choice, my rights so that you can use me as a host to do what you want to do in the earth. You cannot have true prayer without submission. This is why most prayers don't get answered because we don't go into the posture of prayer with neutrality. We go with an agenda. We go with an agenda of what our will is and true prayer is the relinquishing of our will saying, Father, you use me to do whatever you want. I want you to understand that we're here to build the kingdom of heaven, amen? But you understand this. Only the kingdom can build the kingdom. It's a newsflash. Thank you. So many of us are trying to build the kingdom with things of the earth. I don't care how many people you pack into your church through programs and through Sunday school and giving away free stuff. That does not build kingdom. The goal of God is not to have a full house in a church. Jesus never envisioned this anyway. <laughs> this is not the intent. If you think this is church, you're already deceived. Never in scripture was Jesus expecting people to just put aside their faith to such a degree where they come to one place once a week and hear a man talk for an hour, endure it and go home for the rest of the week. That's not the gospel. 
The gospel is a bunch of people who love God so radically that in every moment of their life, they're reduced to just Jesus. And prayer and thanksgiving spill out of them. And when they gather together, there's encouragement, there's uplifting, there's words, there's release, there's an energetic power that begins to stir amongst the community. It so energizes the ecclesia of God that when she goes out because of her mere gathering, hell shakes because they're people of prayer. It was the very icon of the first meetings of the First Testament church, the New Testament church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. They devoted themselves to prayer, breaking of bread, and gathering together. The teachings and the prayer. Why? Because it takes the prayer to unpack the teachings. I remember one pastor saying, he said, you know, there's this idea that everybody has that whenever they feel like they're not being fed in a church, whatever that means, I, I, it's a joke with pastors. If you're not a pastor, you probably wouldn't get it. Maybe you can, maybe you do, I don't know. But whenever they're not being fed in church, they leave. And this one guy asked this congregation, he said, you know, how many hours have you spent throughout the week actually preparing your heart for the message that would come on Sunday? Now, it's easier to show up and criticize what you're not getting based upon the lusts that you call desire. You have a responsibility to hear God and to prepare your heart for the word of truth. I wonder how much your reception and your, your fed reality would change if we positioned ourselves to hear what the Spirit is saying. We've become a people where the world knows more about what we're disagreeing with instead of what we agree with. If our very lives, our marriages, our jobs, which is what Paul went through from chapters one to five and a half, he set that platform. You can go back and listen to the messages. We went through everything. There's a, there's a crescendo happening up to how we live life before we can war. But if our very lives are an antagonism to the kingdom we say we are called to, then our prayers are gonna have no ability to release that kingdom or accomplish anything. And then we're gonna be left to reserve ourselves to ourselves and come up with some mere cheap copy. Which is predominantly what church has become. You understand if you you're here to build a kingdom, but your lives are an antagonism to the kingdom you say you're building, what are you building? Because chaos cannot exist in the kingdom. This is why I find it very hard to believe that in modern day Christendom, there's so much adultery and fornication in the church. It's like, what are, what are, you, what are you here for? Because your very life is an antagonism to the kingdom you say you desire. You're tearing down what God is trying to build. Paul's very, very specific about sexual sin in the New Testament reality. Extremely specific. In fact, so specific, he says, if these people are doing these things in the church, get them out. Well, that's the love of God. It's the Bible. 
And if you think love is tolerance, you've already been brainwashed by culture more than you have the word of truth. I'm not expected to tolerate any life except kingdom life. And kingdom life does take toleration because it is difficult, it's hard, it costs something. It it, it extracts a payment from you. Salvation's free, but to build the kingdom will cost you. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 11, if you will, if you want to. You don't have to. We can put it up on the board too. We're going to start in verse 2. Very, very quickly, we'll go through this. I'm not going to have time to even get through one quarter of my notes. I'm sorry. So we may have to extend it longer, but not today. Don't be afraid. Let's back up to verse 1, Luke Luke chapter 11, verse 1. Prayerfully, I'll reiterate that verse here at the end. I want you to pay attention to this. And many of you have probably heard this before, but even if you have, it's worth repeating. It came to pass as Jesus was praying in a certain place when he quit that one of his disciples said to him, Jesus' life was on display. I, I, I want you to get the gravity of this moment. How many of you guys think it would be absolutely incredible to see someone raised from the dead? Like a dead guy's there, someone walks up and prays for him and they get up. How much applause do you think that would happen, especially if it happened in church? How much praise would come up? What about somebody getting healed and coming out of a wheelchair? What about somebody who's blind and somebody gets, and they're like running around, I can see, and they're like touching door handles and, and you know, doing intricate things. Like, I mean, how, how amazing is that? Don't you think these disciples saw this stuff before this point? They did. They saw Jesus do so many things. They heard the word of prophecy. They touched him. They held him. Nothing they saw Jesus do, nothing they saw Jesus do ever invoked in them a teach me as prayer did. When they saw the miracles, one of them didn't say, teach me to raise the dead. Teach me to heal the sick. There was nothing about what Jesus did that stirred their hearts so deeply that said, I want that. And yet that's what we want to see in modern day Christendom. That's what we build conferences on. We'll go to healing conferences and prophetic conferences and worship conferences. But prayer conferences? It's not how you build ministries. It's not how you get money and raise support. But when they heard this man pray, think of, the, all the, think of everything they saw. 
And when they heard this man pray, something inside of them was lit on fire. And they said, we want to know Father and to pray like you. But you teach us how to do that. You get it? Teach us to pray. And I want you to understand most of the Hebraic prayers, I think the longest prayer they prayed on average was five minutes. The shortest, a few seconds. So was it the praying or was it the quality of the presence in the prayer? See, because you can pray and dread it because there's no quality of presence. But when you're under the anointing of God, you, there's, in that moment, you would not want to be anywhere else. I don't care if you love roller coasters or Italian food. In that moment, you're thinking of neither. And this is what Jesus was interacting with with the Father. So much so that when he prayed, something bellowed off of him and rippled through the air, caught them in the lungs. And the only thing that they could exhale was teach us how to do that. There's a quality of prayer to Christ's life. So he goes to verse two and he says, I'll teach you how to pray. And I'm not gonna have time to go into all the fine points of this, but I'm gonna hit it from a helicopter view, if you will. He says, when you pray, not if. That word when is very important. It's the same word he uses when he says, when you fast, not if. A fastless church and a prayerless church is a powerless church. Oh, it'll have a good organization. It'll have charisma. It'll have the idea of an anointing because they can turn the music up, get the lights just right. A guy on the microphone can be like, you know, they take the picture, just like that. And they put it on their, you know, their Facebook page. But there's adultery and fornication and broken marriages, rebellion, lack of submission, anarchy everywhere in the body. I don't think revival's good services. I think it's restored families. Restored people. Restored communities. They may not look flashy, but they'll weather a storm like nobody else can. And they're the ones that everybody else who has the flashy church run to and say, I need help. And it's amazing to me how many people come to me from other churches and I'm like, why aren't you going to your pastor? I won't give names, I won't do that, but it's so many. And I'm like, well, he can't help me. I'm like, then why are you going there? I don't understand. He said, when you pray, he said, our father, the emphasis upon our identity is first. See, most people who pray don't have a restored identity. 
They're so broken inside that whenever they go to pray, they pray like worms instead of sons. They pray like beggars instead of princes. They don't know who they are. Which is why anybody who comes to this church for any length of time, the first thing I tell you to do is go listen to our identity series because if you don't get that, you're never gonna have a foundation to do anything else, let alone fight a battle. Your prayers will be as orphan prayers. And the self-hate and the degradation that you have upon yourself from all the failures in the past in your life and all the things that you've done wrong will convince you that you're not worthy to actually have God love you or even listen to you. So therefore, when you go in, you're just like, oh, well, Lord, and it's murdered. Your prayers are murdered. They're aborted in unbelief before you even pray. If your prayers are filled with the past failures, they'll never be pregnant with the future purpose. That was the Holy Spirit, not in my notes. He says, our Father, so there's there's an emphasis in the beginning of prayer of understanding identity and connection. This is the first time Jesus actually gave the disciples the authority to call his daddy their daddy. Imagine that moment, every Hebrew knowing God's name as YHVH, the unwritable name. And he says, no, you can call him Abba. (laughs) It still wrecks my heart today. The name of the Lord. Our Father. Lord in heaven, immediate teaching. Immediate teaching. Get your eyes off of what's wrong. Get your eyes off the earth. Get your eyes off the circumstance. Get your eyes off yourself. Get your eyes off your fallenness. Get your eyes off the issue. Get Get your eyes off what you're praying for and on who you're praying to. Let me ask you, do you really pray? Or do you bellyache circumstances and call it prayer? Do you pray as if in you don't have a choice and you're defeated and you're praying for God to come and save you? That is an anti-salvific prayer. It's an anti-salvific way of praying. Because my son, if he gets in trouble, does not have to beg me to come help him. And if you think you have to beg God to come help you, you have already aborted your prayer before you ever started praying it. You're praying through unbelief, not through identity. Who art in heaven. Heaven is your home. Heaven is your reality. Heaven is your destiny. Heaven is your authority. The only way you can influence earth is by being first influenced by heaven. This is why Jesus was able to change this earth because he came from the Father. And not only did he come down, but he did what no other man could do. He ascended back up. 
because every other thing that came down got tainted and had no righteousness to be able to ascend. Such a powerful man. This is why when everybody sees him in scripture, they fall on their face as though they're dead. The first thing he does to every single one of them is he picks them up and says, stand on your feet. Our first reaction to seeing Christ is unworthiness. And his first reaction is to stand us up and say, you're going to face me eye to eye because we're the same in my blood. Can you imagine praying like this? Holy is your name. The Bible says there is no other name given under heaven whereby men must be saved. Were you saved by the name of the Lord? Through faith? Yes. And if his name is holy, then so is yours. But you don't understand what I've done. God doesn't either because he doesn't remember. But you don't understand what I went through. Jesus does because he's already healed it. Don't you remember Ephesians chapter one? Remember Ephesians chapter one, that God healed you before the wound ever came? God chose you before you ever fell away. Don't you remember Ephesians chapter one where the adoption is more secure than the natural birth? Don't you understand Paul's discourse to the Ephesians now? Don't you understand how his wisdom laid out the authority for the church and how she's supposed to operate? And if we don't get Ephesians chapter one, Ephesians chapter six seems as far away to us as God sometimes. Through the Holy Spirit, Paul was a master at educating the church in the ways of the Spirit. And after all of that, reinforcement of authority and kingdom and presence and focus, the first thing he tells us to pray for after coming into is that your kingdom come. Why? Because it is the very heartthrob of God's pressure. Your kingdom come in my marriage. Your kingdom come in my job. Your kingdom come in my children. Your kingdom come in my community. Your kingdom come in my nation and my state. Your kingdom come through my mouth, through my ears, through my hands, through my feet, and your will be done. Why is that important? Because it takes people who are of this caliber to be able to release that kind of anointing. It doesn't take orphans and beggars and people who are trying to convince God who live in their yesterday, always fragmented and broken, never secured by the cross of Jesus, trying to build a kingdom. They don't even care about the kingdom. They're concerned about how, fit, how well they fit into their own skin. Their main goal in life is just to be able to love the thing in the mirror. 
when God has already done that. And he goes into the material things of this life. Can you imagine if you went through the prayer process and you were so focused on those first few verses that your identity, your authority, your reality, your focus, your everything in, 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 the, in the position of the kingdom echoed again in Matthew 6, through the letters in red, seek first the. No wonder so many people's, everybody I counsel in some way has the pyramid upside down in their life. <laughs> Everything's falling apart because kingdom's not first. Well, I can't put kingdom first because I got my job. Or I can't put kingdom first because of my wife. Or I can't put kingdom first because of my husband. I can't put kingdom first because of this or because of that. You don't understand. No, no, no. Until you put kingdom first, everything will be chaos. In fact, when you don't put kingdom first, you create chaos. You create chaos. And then you blame God for the confusion. Or somebody else. Just the sheer fact that we don't live godly lives many times causes so much demonic chaos. And then we think we're being attacked by the devil when he's just using our authority to build the kingdom of chaos instead of the kingdom of heaven. You understand the devil has to operate in kingdom reality the same way you and I do. He doesn't have the right to just go around and do what he wants. He has to have permission. He has to have a host to operate through. Both powers have to have a being to operate through legally. It's a, it's a law of the spirit. And if you don't think the spirit is a law place, then you need to go back and look at scripture and read the language. It's called the great white throne judgment. He's called the judge. He's, the devil's called the accuser or the, the uh, what's the word in the legal term? The prosecutor. And then Jesus is our advocate, our defense attorney. Everything's about a legal operation. Jesus had to live life legally in order to fulfill the obligations of the law and the old letter to be able to bring a new covenant, a new law, a new reality that we're supposed to live under. And the devil works overtime to get Christian people to live under an Old Testament mindset. Because in that Old Testament mindset, he rules and reigns. The past holds you and will not let you go. And then he goes to, to verse three, give us this day our daily bread. And this is a profound focus upon God. There is no thing in here that says God helps the man who helps himself. That's a bunch of baloney. People think, there's actually some people who think that's a Bible verse. Christians need to read their Bibles. God helps the man that helps himself. The profound focus here in verse three is upon Jesus being our provider in everything, flesh, money, mind, spirit, heart, that as the bread of Christ, the bread of heaven came down for our ultimate blessing, we would understand that that same bread would never run out for anything else in our lives, but it always has its origins in our Father. Give us this day our daily bread. In other words, every day I look to you for my dependency. Every day I look to you for my blessing. Every day I look to you for everything I need. And I know you'll never fail me because it's not your nature to do so. The same way the manna 
fell in a consistent way. God is saying, every earthly thing that you're already praying about, it will come on the day that you need it. So we're not getting into the intricacies of him saying, we need to pray for this and pray for that. He says, no, you give me what I need for today because that is where your kingdom can be grown the most. And the things that I'm concerned for in the future, there is a man a day set for that. And when it comes, it will have its power and it will have its glory. But to try to eat tomorrow's food in hope only leaves us hungry for today. Everything that is given comes from life and godliness and will impregnate us in a full satisfied way as we receive what he has for that moment. And it may be the thing that we don't want and that our flesh screams against, but our spirit is saying, this is the only way to ascension. It may be a hardship, a trial, a difficulty, but our spirit inside says, honey, you gotta go through this because we need to ascend to our father. And it will take the death of having to go through this situation to get there. Therefore, we can rejoice because we know we're not looking at the process. We're looking at the end result that the process brings. Our minds are renewed. We're not victims anymore. And he goes to verse four, forgive our sins. Every day we pray. Forgive us our trespasses, the things that we've done wrong, the things that we've gone astray. Why can we pray that? Because of the great blood of Christ. Notice how far down this part is. But do you notice where, where most people start praying from? They don't start praying until they get to verse four. <laughs> has, 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 has anything impacted you in the book of Ephesians? It should be the fact that Paul places order on everything and how it's supposed to work. You can't talk about marriages until you talk about Ephesians chapter one. You can't restore marriages until you restore individuals. It doesn't work. Individuals have to be restored before marriages can be restored because marriages are nothing more than a combination of two individuals. The order of God doesn't change. We start praying in, in verse four Jesus starts praying in verse two. You get what I'm saying? Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. Here, Jesus is talking about spiritual warfare. One of the greatest entrances that hell has is through wounds, pains, and faults of another person in your life. If he can't get in through you, he'll get in through a wound from someone else. And if we don't forgive that person, we are legally holding them hostage and therefore we are legally holding ourselves hostage because Jesus says we are one. We started the prayer with what? The word, what's the, what's the prayer start with? One word, the first word. Our Father. To not forgive your brother or sister in Christ is to hold yourself under legal slavery. And when you do that, the devil has access to your mind and your heart and he will bring chaos. This is the part of spiritual warfare Jesus brings into prayer. It's not telling the devil where to go in Jesus' name. It's forgiving those who've hurt us. I don't care if it was last week, this month, last year, two years ago, 10 years ago, 25 years ago, or the fact that you were even born in the first place. I don't care how far it goes back. 
every day we acknowledge the blood of Jesus over our life and the blood of Jesus over those who have hurt us. Why? Because when you live in that reality, you're living in the kingdom reality that is above offense. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. What that word literally means is, is do not let us yield to temptation. But deliver us. This is what I was talking about earlier. This type of praying goes into the future and prays for the moment of temptation before you actually get there. Most people wait till they're tempted and then they end up trying to cry out to God and they fail in their temptation. This type of praying says, do not let me yield to the temptation that's coming. So the prayer comes before the attack. The preparation comes before the assault. The prayer comes before the purpose of the devil. This type of praying prays into the future. It's securing a freedom for us we have yet, not yet even touched. You remember when Jesus did this for Peter? I've prayed for you that your faith would not. Jesus, prayer is a future impregnation of God's purposes in a now that cannot be seen. It touches something that's outside of our moment. That's why prayer is so powerful because the moment doesn't move us, the intention behind it does. Jesus saw the restoration of Peter, not his failure. Because anybody who reads the story looks at, looks at the situation and go, his faith did fail, not according to God. Which means God, in God's mind, you can physically fail and yet never have had your faith fail. I don't know how that works, but I'm glad it does. Do not let us yield to temptation, but deliver us. Many are not delivered because they're not unpacking the armor of prayer. Many go through certain battles in their life simply because they haven't prayed to be delivered for the things that are coming. What does Jesus say? He says, pray that you would be counted worthy to escape the things that are coming. Those are futuristic prayers. Most of the prayers that are prayed are futuristic prayers. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That was a futuristic prayer. John 17 incorporated both a moment in prayer, now prayer, but a future prayer. He said, not only do I pray for these who are here, but I also pray for those that will believe upon their word. He was praying for us. Prayer transcends time, circumstance, space, and everything. It goes into a reality. It works the reality that God's intending. It brings the reality back into the earth like incense and fire, and the earth has to respond to the prayers of the people. You remember in Revelation where God dumps out the vials of the prayers of the saints into the earth and it is met with smoke and lightning and thunder. Romans chapter eight, all the earth groans for the revealing of the manifestation of the sons of God. Why? Because the sons of God have already touched the reality the earth longs for. And I'll try to close with the last part. Oh my gosh, that took 20 minutes. I am sorry, guys. I'm gonna, I'm gonna wrap this up with verse five and down. We'll read it and I'll just paraphr- I'll, I'll wrap it up and we'll go. All right. And he said to them, which of you shall have a friend that will go into him at midnight and say, friend, let me have three loaves. For a friend of mine is on his journey and has come with me and I have nothing to set before him. And he with 
will, from within will answer and say, don't, don't leave me alone. My door's shut. My children are, are within bed with me. I cannot get up to give you something. But I say unto you, though he will not rise and give him because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity, he will rise and give him as many as he needeth. And I say unto you, ask and it shall be given. Seek, you shall find, knock, and it will be opened to you. Everyone that asks receives, everyone seeks that finds, everyone who knocks, it will be open. If a son asks for bread of any of you, there's a father, will you give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, will you give him a serpent? If he asks for an egg, will you give him a scorpion? If you then being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? <coughs> Prayer is the interaction with the Godhead who is on this earth via, namely the Holy Spirit. Prayer is an interaction with the spirit of truth. Prayer is the interaction with the Holy Ghost. Because when you interact with the Holy Ghost, the Holy Ghost who knows all things and searches all things, including the depths of God, takes your petitions up to heaven and then runs them through that eternal rigor of whatever goes on through there. And Father says, amen, stamps its approval. And it comes back down into the earth and it's called miracles and signs and wonders. Jesus tells the context here. He says, look, even though you're praying for some things, you better keep after it because I'm not asking you to ask once. I'm asking you to war with me in the heavens. We think, oh, God's not answering my prayer. How selfish of you. What if it's more about the journey he's taking you through in intimacy and walking with him to be able to accomplish something that's had a, a, a 10,000 year stronghold over an area instead of just looking at, well, God's not answering my prayer. No. We interact with the Father through the things of the Father. We build the kingdom with the Father. Building doesn't happen in a moment. It happens over time. And when God asks us to build the kingdom, it's through prayer, it's through walking, it's through intimacy, it's through you know, taking each step of the way. Jesus grew in wisdom and stature in favor of God and man. He grew. He built the kingdom, a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time. Within the asking is the petition, the intercession, the intimacy. Within the seeking is the continuance, the study, the intentionality, the focus, and the consistency. And within the knocking is the pursuit, the boldness, the acknowledgement, and the crossing the threshold of the Spirit. Doors are always thresholds. and entrance from one place to another. When he says knock, it's not about getting Jesus to answer and go, hello. It's about crossing into a different reality. Prayer is crossing into a different reality. The door opens and you step across one room into another. You go in from one reality, you exit that reality, and you come into another reality. That's the door opening. It's not getting what you want. It's coming into his reality. It's transferring yourself from one place to the next by prayer through the Holy Spirit and through continuing to ask and seek and knock until that spiritual doorway opens to you. You step into that and everybody who, who looks at you as you come back to them go, my God, where have you been? You've changed. Your countenance is different. Your integrity is different. Your authority is different. Your face is different. You say, I've been with God. Show me how to get there. Amen. You can stand with me.
Hopefully as we go on, we can unpack this more. But I'm just going to ask you to start your journey again with prayer with God. Be a little more intentional than you were. And when you, let me just tell you this, guys. When you first start out, it's going to be hard because your mind isn't as disciplined as it needs to be. Your heart isn't as disciplined as it needs to be. And when you get down to pray, the devil is going to remind you of everything you forgot to do. The phone's going to ring. Somebody's going to need you. You're going to be distracted in your mind. And you're going to feel like this is impossible. I can't do this. But here's, 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 here's a little tip for you. Don't be discouraged when you realize that your mind has gone astray. Be encouraged that that's your moment to bring it back. That is the moment of recognition where you're like, oh, I strayed again. Now it's time to return. Whereas the devil will say, you're not even here. And you just, whatever. But two things that I can help you with in 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 your moments with God. It's always start in your mind by recognizing who he is to you as father, that you're not fighting or striving for anything, and then go right into worship. Begin to hallowed be your name. And when you get into that worship, and then stay there until you feel his presence. When you feel his presence, just get quiet and open your heart and let him speak to you. Amen. Amen. Father, help us pick up our sword, pick up our prayer, pick up our shield to put on Christ. We thank you that you you don't despise us. And Lord, even during worship, I saw like this campfire that had kind of smoldered and it wasn't burning anymore, but there was coals and I saw you blowing on them, blowing them in the flames. I was reminded of the word where he says, a smoldering wick you will not extinguish. So I pray that you fan into the flame of our hearts to be with you, to love you, to know you to take our rightful place as kingdom ambassadors and to know that we receive things from our Father in prayer. I pray for a revival of prayer in this church. I pray for a revival of prayer in our individual lives. And Lord, I pray that you would be glorified through such things, that as you move through your people and you speak to them, Lord, that they would be able to have the sustenance of the kingdom of God to release it to someone else. That individual words become corporate encouragements. And that, Lord, we wouldn't see ourselves as individuals, but we would see ourselves as one body and Messiah. That it's our responsibility to live and move and have our being with one another. Lord, we thank you. We ask for your grace over this evening. We pray your spirit would be upon it, Father, because that's exactly what we're trying to accomplish is the spirit of unity in worship and prayer unto you for this city. So, Lord, I ask that you would put upon people's hearts the desire to want to be there and to love you, to, to worship you, to seek you, and to release their authority into this realm. We honor you today, Lord. We ask for your blessing upon the continuance of this word in our hearts to even work even when we're not conscious of it. That, Holy Spirit, you would take this and just dig it into us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for your patience, guys.